Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. You guys can be seated. So I know uh, many of you might be be familiar with Trevor and his story, uh, but I, I also know that many of you might not be. Um, Trevor uh, is uh, a dear, an old friend of, of mine. Um, was that funny when I said you're a deer? No, I just, He's actually I a human, not a deer, but okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, I thought you were like scoffing. Uh, so uh, my apologies. Um, yeah, just allergies. Be healed. So, um, but we, uh, um, man, we've been friends for a number of years. Uh, we've been in ministry uh, together uh, through uh, just a number of different churches, including King's Cross. Uh, and uh, Trevor is one of those friends uh, that, just loves the deep things of God. Um, and I always find myself just encouraged and, and challenged in my, in, in my faith uh, through uh, just basic conversations uh, with him. Um, he's also uh, somebody who is um, not unacquainted with deep suffering. Um, if you know anything about his story, uh, over the last uh, several years, particularly over the last few years, uh, have been a, a hard journey for, for him and his family um, for a number of reasons. Uh, one of them being that he was uh, diagnosed with cancer uh, some, some years back, uh, and then cancer was like undetectable, and then just recently uh, got re-diagnosed with was stage four colon cancer, um, which is you know, typically bad news. And so we've been uh, just praying for him uh, as a church family. I know that many uh, of you who have known about uh, the needs of the Wright family uh, have, have prayed for them, uh, have given to them, have, have um, been around them. And um, man, uh, Trevor is just one of those guys who, because of those reasons, and because I just really love to hear him uh, expound on the word of God, uh, I asked him to preach on this next passage of scripture in 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 12, on a sermon that he titled, The Subversion of Suffering. Uh, and so, man, I just want to say, like, I love you. I'm excited to learn from you, uh, just be served uh, by you this morning, and I hope you guys are as well. Let me pray for you, uh, and then we'll get started. Father, I'm grateful for my brother Trevor. Um and just the ways that you have uh, just preserved him 
up to this point to serve us, um, to serve his family, to love them, and um, the ways that you've preserved and even grown his faith uh, through the many ups and downs and, and trials over these last few years. Um, I praise you, God, that, that, that even in the middle of all of that, uh, that he's the kind of brother and the kind of man of God uh, where we can be confident in his faith and his trust in you, his love for your word, uh, and to be confident that we would be served well uh, by him using his gift of teaching um, to build us up in our own faiths. And so Holy Spirit, would you do what only you can do? Um, would you make life grow in dead spaces? Would you make light shine in the darkness? Would you make growth happen in our hearts uh, where maybe there's just spiritual deadness right now? God, that's something only you can do. And so we ask, pray, beg that you would do this for your glory, for our good. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks, brother. All right, are we on? Sounds like we are. Um, yeah, I just want to say thank you so much to all of you um, personally for praying for me, for my family. Um, it's been a really discombobulating time for us, you know, receiving on January 11th our baby daughter, Jane Ridley Wright, um, just a couple weeks after uh, getting the re-diagnosis of, of cancer. Um, thank you for praying for us, and thank you for supporting us. Um, we love you guys. We feel loved by you. Um, entering into tonight's topic and tonight's sermon, I want you to know that though that's all gone on in my life, in my wife Cheryl's life, um, I, I actually feel woefully inadequate uh, to preach to you tonight about uh, this text. Um, we're going to be called to rejoice in suffering tonight. Um, and that doesn't always take place for me. Uh, it hasn't always taken place in the context of my cancer, uh, but it it, it certainly hasn't always taken place in the context of my Christian faith. Um, John Owen, the great Puritan, uh, he, he says that when we enter into times of suffering, there is a temptation and there is a reality of hard thoughts about God. Hard thoughts about God. C.S. Lewis um, touches on this in his book, A Grief Observed, when he says, when a, a Christian enters into suffering and into hardship, it's not, it's not really so much that you're, you're drawn to question, does God, does God exist? You may be settled on that, but what you, what, what you may be drawn to and, and, and are probably drawn to is, what kind of God is this? Is he bad? Does he not like me? Did I, did I do something? Is, is this punishment for me right now? Am I really his child? You're drawn towards hard thoughts about God. Even in light of the cross of Christ. Even in light of, for God so loved you. 
that he gave his one and only begotten son. Even in light of that, you will still be drawn in your sin and in your suffering to think hard thoughts about him. The suffering that, that I'm going to be talking to you about tonight is, is peculiar to believers. Um, and uh, that's, that, that, that's particularly why I feel a little bit inadequate about this because I've, I've failed really bad at having a Christian wish, witness at, at times. Um, I told Chris that I was going to do something before I got going, and I did it because I didn't want him to feel uncomfortable. Uh, but it's, it would have been so uncomfortable that I just didn't do it. Um, I was going to come up to the podium and act like I, like I wasn't ready. Um, and I didn't want Chris to think like, oh gosh, I went with the wrong guy. Um, and I, I, I didn't do it because honestly, even though I would know that I was doing it on purpose, I would feel so awkward that, uh, I, that I just couldn't do it. Um, but the point that I was going to draw out of that, I can still explain to you. And that's that um, as, as I prepared for the sermon, hey, eventually I have to preach it. Like preparation has taken place. It's time to step up to the podium and, and preach the word of God. Um, and if I hesitated, if I was up here, like one, you guys would feel really awkward. I didn't want to do that to you. If, if I did that, I would feel super awkward. Um, and the point that I would want to make in doing that is, is that often <clears throat> holding back from the thing that we're called to do is more awkward and, and harder than just doing it. Just doing it. Just, just do it. And, and as, as we live our Christian lives, I think for a lot of us, that, that, that awkwardness and that uh, just fear, honestly, of, of living out your Christian convictions, putting your display of, of, of your love for Jesus uh, out into the world, um, holding that back might actually be more troubling uh, than actually just doing it. And I know that's not easy. Um, and I know that that's a little bit of a leap for a lot of us, but um, we're going to talk about that tonight. Um, I titled my, my sermon, The Subversion of Suffering. Uh, and just quickly, uh, that's not a word we normally use. Uh, subversion, uh, the definition, the first one that I came across on the interweb, is the undermining of the power and authority of an established system. The undermining of the power and authority of an established system. So the subversion of suffering, the undermining of suffering. And the main point that I want us to get out of our time together uh, tonight uh, is this. This is the main point. God doesn't just call us to live subversively for his will, in a world that is not our own, he calls us to respond subversively to the trials that come as a result of that living. Because something other than pain is going on in these trials. The title of our current series in First Peter is Resilient Hope. 
This is due in part to the fact that the book of 1 Peter fixes our hearts on two realities. The gloriously good future reality of our inheritance in Jesus Christ, our hope, while simultaneously grounding us in the present sober realities of a fallen world and the hardships and hostility undertaken specifically by those who follow Christ, who embody the character and conduct of Christ therein. Uh, there were a couple things that happened this week that I feel were just kind of like from God. Um, I know I might be weird, like that was from God. Um, I, that's not, I, um, I feel awkward even saying that, but um, my boys love running around in the house and listening to music and, uh, you know, they're saying, hey, Alexa now, and they like will just turn on Alexa, um, which is fine most of the time, uh, but... Uh, my oldest son, Josiah, he was wanting a song to be played uh, that was about falling down because he was falling down. So he said, Dad, I want, I want a song about falling down. And the only thing that could come to my mind was Chumbawamba's. Uh, I get knocked down, but I get up again. You're never going to keep me down. Um, and uh, I was just like, thank you, Jesus, uh, because uh, uh, the book of First Peter is, is our Chumbawamba. Uh, it's, 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 it's our, we get knocked down, but we get up again. You're never going to keep us down. It's our falling down song. Um, first Peter, um, hope in that future reality, our home with Christ is presented in first Peter as a buoy that, um, in the raging sea of fallenness and sin continually pulls the believer upward and onward. And in my own experience of faith, maybe you guys can resonate with this, resiliency hasn't come by way of having all of the answers to life's questions. In particular, those with regards to suffering and hardship. Resiliency of faith and all of its outworking and action, confidence and conviction in the midst of unknowns has rather come by way of being enticed, even settled, on some limited but specific and weighty answers. You can be surrounded by darkness, but if that darkness is not utter, if there is but one pinprick of light, you can move towards it. You could move because of it. And many of us are going to be kept faithful by pinpricks. And I hope to draw our attention to some of those truths that will keep us not only resilient tonight, but bold in our life of faith in this world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, I thank you for this opportunity to preach to your people. I pray for those that may be listening or watching uh, online. Uh, and I just ask, um, as I did before uh, this church service started, that in all the experiences of faith, 
in this room and in the experiences of faith of those that are watching or listening. Um, Lord, some of us want so badly to be more like Jesus. We want so much to have his life in, in our life and to not be afraid, but to, but to be bold and courageous like he was, to live for your will. Some of us maybe don't want that. Um, maybe we wouldn't say that out loud, but we're content to just kind of get by and um, be as comfortable as we can while being a believer. And some may not want any part with you, but they know that something's going on and they're just looking into what you might have to offer. And I, I just ask God that you would meet all of us here tonight, that your spirit would work, and that our hearts and minds would be drawn toward um, hope and truth. In Jesus' name, amen. 1 Peter 2.19 For this is a glorious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. 2 Timothy 3.12 Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. John 16.33 In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Two prefacing concerns um, before we get into our text. The topic of our text tonight uh, in First Peter chapter four verses twelve through nineteen is not an easy one, and I'm completely aware that apart from the sufferings that we may be enduring uh, for the sake of Christ and are called to in following Him, that there are general sufferings, sufferings that come upon Christian and non-Christian alike, that some of you may be enduring right now. For those of you in that second category, I, I know what await the call to suffer for Christ tonight would be. To have added to your general anguish and pain another kind of suffering, specific to you as a Christian. And I'm not going to be tackling the topic of suffering in general tonight at great length. Suffering apart from what a Christian's called to endure. Suffering due to disease, due to viruses, abuse, calamity, loneliness, depression. So I want you to simply know that what I'm saying tonight and will be saying tonight, I don't say in any glib way, um, as if suffering was just, hey, another part of life for you as a Christian. Um, so if you really love Jesus, just get to it. Now, God is near to the brokenhearted, and he is patient, and he is kind. He, this wasn't in my notes, this wasn't supposed to happen. Um, he's drawn to the one with a contrite and broken spirit. He does not despise you. He's with you. 
And secondly, I want to address those that might uh, think that the idea of Christian suffering, especially within the context in which we live, is kind of like a woe is me moment uh, where we all kind of get to just pat ourselves on the back and like think like, wow, what champs we are. We're suffering, guys, um, here in Orange County um, as Christians. <clears throat> And what I'd like to say to that is that the comfort that comes tonight is not for one that would use that label of Christian for political gain. It's not for the one who would use it for power over those who are weaker than them. It's not for those that would use the Christian faith to manipulate and to abuse It's not for murderers, it's not for those who steal, it's not for meddlers even, as verse 15 points out. It is for those who endure the same kinds of suffering as Jesus. And you might not be experiencing a lot of those right now in your context, but there are thousands in this world that are right now enduring the same bodily, emotional sufferings as Jesus in ways that this text speaks to enormously. And that could speak to you if you move down the road that they've gone down. Um, as I said, I'm not, I'm not the best example at this kind of living. Um, but I will mention just, uh, for the sake of, of, of maybe, uh, just letting you know, um, what difficulties for us might look like within our context. Um, what, what, what I've, what I've gone through. Um, I've by virtue of my faith in Jesus, been drawn towards difficult personalities in my life. Um, I'm not going to name any names tonight. (laughs) Um, But I have had, since I uh, came to faith in Jesus, just just a heart for for people that that most of us might might be discomforted by, uh, annoyed by, um, that, you know, might ruin your coolness a little bit um that 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 might you know uh photoshop your let's just say photoshop pictures of you into the bodies of other people like muscle men online every day Uh, (laughs) that's happened to me um and um and this has taken place by virtue of my faith in christ because i had I have in my mind and heart the reality that Jesus loves me. That Jesus loves me. Let me tell you, there is a gulf between the character, holiness, 
and, and worth of Christ and me that surpasses any gulf between me and another human being. And he died for me. And so out of that reality, I thought, maybe I'll move forward and I could get a cup of coffee with somebody that I just maybe otherwise wouldn't get along with. If I take you out for coffee, it's not you. <laughs> You're probably not going to know. Um, I, I, I hope that you wouldn't know uh, that I was in that moment ministering to a hard personality. It's my goal to, to be as welcoming and loving as Jesus. <laughs> um, maybe some of you could resonate with this one. Uh, maintaining faith to the loss or detriment of relationships. Right? Um, and simple example, uh, within my, my, my own family, uh, most of my family doesn't believe the same things that I do. Um, I love them. They love me. They respect me. They respect my faith. But there's a depth of relationship that we just have never been able to share. Uh, my own trials are not experienced in the same ways. Uh, they don't express their reaction to my trials the way that I would express my reaction to my trials. We don't find comfort within our trials in the same way. Um, there would be um, a lot more, a lot more togetherness, a lot more um, uh, of a robust relationship if we did share that faith, if, if, if I just didn't have this going on for me. Um, so that's one, one other thing. Uh, I've confronted others about their, their sins, uh, and I've gotten sidelined and reviled uh, due to their reaction. I've confessed my own sins, and I've had to bear the pain of, of seeing uh, what kind of uh, an experience that gives to another person, to know what was in my mind or heart or in my actions in the dark. Those are things that we as Christians are pressed into by virtue of our faith in Christ, and they will bring about hardship and trial. And I haven't been perfect in all those things. There's been plenty of times in all those situations where I've thought, this isn't fair. This isn't, this, this isn't right. I'm doing the right thing. I'm trying to glorify God by stepping forward in faith here and I'm getting beat up for it. It's ridiculous. The interpretation that maybe God doesn't exist and all this is just random sometimes made more sense to me, sometimes does make more sense to me than doing good and being reviled for it. As believers, maybe sometimes we think we're ready for great suffering. Many believers think, and I'm included in this, that if their life hung in the balance, uh, we're on the line that, 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 that they'd continue to profess Christ, which is commendable, and I hope to God I could. But the real test may not be in those extreme moments of trial but in the mundane, nagging, consistent suffering of day in, day out, living for Jesus. I think it's interesting that in the greater amount of references to suffering in 1 Peter, we don't have them as being references to bodily suffering. Listen to this. Chapter 2, verse 12, we're spoken of uh, 
we're, we are spoken against as evildoers. People are just saying we're, we're evildoers. Chapter 2, verse 23, Christ was reviled and he didn't revile in return. There we are called to emulate him in this. So we get reviled. Chapter 4, verse 4, Christians are maligned when they don't live as the world does. And in our text tonight, chapter 4, verse 14, Christians are insulted. I think a lot of us, when we see we're talking about suffering tonight, it's like, oh gosh, like he's going to talk about suffering. That's going to really kind of like, you know, chafe a little bit. Um, and then we, 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 we see insult and, and we're like, all right, that, that's the kind of suffering I can get behind. I can be insulted. And then I think, we think about that for maybe a little while. It's like, oh man, I don't want to be insulted. Like, <laughs> that'd, be, that'd be terrible. Um, and here's the th- here's an example. I love my wife. I love my wife. Um, and, and I know that I, I, I know, I know that I would jump into a bullet for her 10 out of 10 times. But ask me to take out the trash daily for her, consistently give up my preferences for her, check in often with her on an emotionally satisfying level. E- I can tell you right now, I'm, not, I'm, I'm no 10 out of 10. <laughs> um, hey, we all have room to improve, okay? With respect to living and enduring trials for Christ, none of us have arrived. None of us. But I hope to live more for him. And I hope that you want to live for, more for him as well. So let's get into our, to our text tonight. Oh, I forgot to set my stopwatch. All right, I'll do it right now. I got 45 minutes. Okay. All right, beloved, uh, do not be, I have no idea what time it is right now. We'll see. Yeah, anyway, um, verse 12. Uh, this, this is our first, first, uh, first point. Um, I thought it was kind of clever. Suffering the new normal. I thought that was going to get more of a laugh. The COVID thing. New normal? Anyway. Verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. As we get into this verse, let's think about some ways and some reasons why it might be strange to us. Why it might be surprising. Peter tells us not to be surprised. That begs the question, why do you have to say that? Look at three reasons. One really specific to us. One, suffering, the suffering described here is unjust. The suffering in our text tonight is not harmonious with what uh, we would intuitively label fair. It's attributed here to suffering, uh, the suffering of those who follow Christ, and it is coming upon them because they follow Christ, because they are seeking after righteousness. They're seeking to do good. And this is surprising to our sensibilities because our sensibilities are drawn more towards the truism of Proverbs 13.21, namely, that adversity comes to sinners because they're doing stuff they ought not to do. 
In our text, Peter makes the jarring claim that adversity comes to believers rather because they are doing good. And listen, even if we know our Bibles well and know in our minds why we shouldn't be surprised when we suffer for righteousness sake, it doesn't take away from the feeling of surprise when it happens. Trust me. Two, suffering in general, though normal, normal in the sense of its commonness, is nevertheless experienced as an intruder upon a deeper ontological norm that is currently uncommon. What I mean by an ontological norm is that there is something in our very nature, our very being, an Edenic residue settled at the base of our souls that just no suffering is not supposed to be. That it ought not to be and that it once was not. Karen Jobs, in her commentary, points out that while our expectation of an existence uh, of, a, of an existence generally free from suffering, I'm going to say that one more time. In, in her commentary, she points out that while our expectation of an existence generally free from suffering is what causes, in part, expectational chafing when we read Peter's words and when we experience trials ourselves, they are nevertheless expectations wholly appropriate in a world that once met them. She says, quote, The idea that normal life should always be harmonious and free from suffering, despite universal suffering and death, remains a lingering echo of life in Eden as God created it before the fall. Again, suffering while being normal in its experience for all, and in our text, specifically as Christians, it should not be understood as normal in the sense of how things ought to be or have always been or always will be. Yes, the feeling of suffering's intrusion of its ought-not-to-be-ness twists our expectations when we come to this verse, but it also solidifies and validates our expectations to be precursors of a longing for a time when there will be no more tears, suffering, pain, and death. And thirdly, why we might be surprised by the suffering is specific to us. We simply live in an anomalous county within an anomalous state in an anomalous country at an anomalous time. We as those who attend a church in Orange County within a country that for all the bad press that it gets, um, still is not systematically killing or imprisoning us for our allegiance to Jesus. Permits us to be aligned with Christ and live for health, wealth, comfort, and happiness should we choose to, while saying we're a believer. We aren't presented in our context with many explicit and extreme opportunities to suffer for Jesus. 
In this environment, if we don't exercise our faith in specific ways within it, we'll shape our expectations, not only of what the normal Christian experience is, but what the normal human experience is. Generally easygoing. While the normative Christian experience, according to the Bible, is that of a despised refugee. that of those who have no home in this world, those who are in the here and now perpetually on the road to rest rather than at rest. So we should be getting beat up a little bit, but my guess is that most of us don't feel like it is extremely difficult to be a Christian and are maybe even a little bit discomforted by that designation of despised refugee. I was drawn out of my anomaly of an experience here as a Christian at the end of just this last week. I came across an ad from the organization, The Voice of the Martyrs, uh, for a virtual event that took place on Friday night in which um, they were having three pastors uh, speak that had been imprisoned uh, for being Christians. And all three of them made this text come alive for me. We really should be consistently praying for our imprisoned brothers and sisters around the world, persecuted bodily brothers and sisters, children around the world. One of these pastors was from the Czech Republic and he had been ministering to persecuted Christians in Sudan, many of which Uh, were suffering worse than he would, missing limbs uh, because extremist Muslims uh, take as their marching orders a text that says that you're to win over the infidel by cutting off, uh, I think it's the left arm and the right leg uh, of those who would not submit uh, to Sharia law. So he's ministering to these people, and while doing so, he became persecuted himself. He, he gets imprisoned on the charges of being a spy and seeking to undermine the leading regime in Sudan. He was placed in a cell with four members of ISIS, one of which was instrumental in the headline beheading of the fifth, I, I think it was 15 Coptic Christians in 2015. These men insulted this man, this Christian. They derided him. They beat him while he was in prison. That and much worse. That and much worse is the norm for many of our brothers and sisters around the world because they're Christians. We live in an an anomaly. All three of these reasons warrant Peter's admonition to us. They show us why we might be surprised and why he'd have to tell us not to be. So let's see why we shouldn't be. This one won't come as a surprise. Uh, Christians uh, are people who follow Jesus, uh, and Jesus lived a subversive life that challenged and therefore caused the evil of this world to clash with him in ways that led to his bodily suffering and death. That's the life that you seek to emulate. So, 
In the previous section of chapter 4, Peter says this in verse 1. He says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Sorry about that. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Christ suffered in the flesh. This mind directive might bring to your thoughts a similar one given by Paul in Philippians 2.5 in calling Christians to humility. There Paul says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So why did Christ suffer in the flesh? It's because he was obedient to his Father's will. It was because he didn't live for human passions, but for the subversive will of his Father in heaven that called him to better things than bodily comfort and an easygoing lifestyle. The mind of Christ drew him to humility, which produced a life of obedience, a subjection to the Father's will, and it resulted in him getting crucified. So arm yourselves with the thought that you are going to suffer. Why? Because as a follower of Christ, like Christ, as the previous section says in chapter 4, verse 1, you're no longer living for your fleshly human passions anymore as a Christian. Passions that would be driven to be esteemed by others and comforted and consoled in the flesh. No, you now live for the will of God. And when you live in a world that operates on the fuel of fleshly passions, is enticed by it, submerged in them, and you choose rather to live on the fuel of God's will, it's going to clash a bit. The suffering doesn't come so much from the good that you do as a Christian, so much as the setting in which you do it. If they hated Jesus for it, they're going to hate you for it. You will be maligned. You will be, at the least, insulted. Our second point is suffering ground for gladness. This is difficult. Suffering like that is, is a difficult thing. No matter how you slice it, if you're insulted, if you're bodily harmed, it's difficult. And that's what makes the next point of Peter's even more surprising. You're to rejoice in those sufferings. Verses 12 through 13. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. 
Rejoice in your sufferings, insofar as they are the sharing of Christ's sufferings. Why would suffering in the manner of Christ cause believers to rejoice? And what about our current capacity to rejoice in those sufferings would confirm the reality of our future rejoicing and gladness when Christ's glory is revealed? The answer to the first question, why we rejoice when we suffer for Christ, starts in verse 14, which says, If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Suffering in like manner to that of Christ confirms our standing before God as blessed approved, favored. You are validated. Furthermore, it entails that the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Your place with Christ on the road is confirmed and the glory that Christ's road ended in, that's your end. It's worth noting the probable text from which Peter is drawing from when he uses the phrase, the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. It's Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 2. This is a messianic prophecy that is applied to Jesus, and it reads, A staff shall come out of the root of Jesse, it's the tribe of Israel, and A blossom shall come up out of his root, and the Spirit of God shall rest on him. Listen to this. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. The Spirit of counsel and might. The Spirit of knowledge and godliness. What an encouragement to suffering believers that the path they've taken, the suffering they're undergoing proves them far from being foolish as wise, far from being weak as mighty, far from being uninformed and forsaken, filled with knowledge and infused with godliness. To know that the Spirit of God, evidenced by their suffering in the manner of Christ, rests upon them. It finds a home in them. That for a true follower of Jesus, for those who value godliness, who love Jesus, is cause for subversive rejoicing. Rejoicing that will not bow to suffering. This spirit rested upon Jesus and it guided the prophets of old when according to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 11, predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. The echoes of of Christ's 
sufferings in the surefire trials of Christians in this present age serve as surefire signs of subsequent glories. That is what merits and grounds our gladness as we suffer for his name. As verse 16 says, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. Don't be ashamed. But let him glorify God in that name. Suffering, ground for gladness, and ground for praise rather than shame. And why does this rejoicing now in this present age, in suffering, confirm the reality of a rejoicing and gladness when Christ's glory is revealed. I've already alluded to it, um, but maybe an illustration might might help. Um, how am I doing on time? Am I doing okay? All right, cool. He doesn't know either. So, is everybody doing okay? Yeah, you doing all right? All right. Well, you know, filling the room out uh, out a bit. Um, I don't know if you guys are familiar with uh, the YouTube personality, Mr. Beast. I think that's it, Mr. Beast. I don't, he, apparently he is very popular. Um, I thought there was going to be more people here tonight that knew about him. Anyway, it doesn't, you don't have to know, you don't have to know him uh, to know my point. Uh, He does, he has made an exuberant amount of money uh, doing these oddball challenges and some really awesome, helpful things for for people in, in hard times. Um, but uh, one of the hardball challenges, uh, the prize is, is, is an exuberant amount of money for these people. Um, but the video that I came across was uh, there were four people and they all had to keep their hand on a table. And the last one to take their hand off won all the money. And so these people are keeping their hand on the table for like three days without sleep. <laughs> And slowly they start to waver, fall asleep, like lose track of what's going on. And, you know, eventually somebody wins the money, which is awesome. Uh, They get, uh, you know, a bunch of money for just keeping their hand on a table. Um, But what's being revealed in their willingness to undergo something like that? It's their value of money. (laughs) They, They really want that money. And so they keep their hand on the table Uh, And that whole experience is displaying to all the YouTube watchers, they really like money. I kind of wish that I had the opportunity. (laughs) Um, That's an easy way to make some dough. Um, Why does this rejoicing in our sufferings right now enable or, or confirm the reality of our rejoicing in gladness? Uh, when Christ's glory is revealed, the short answer is that it shows that that's exactly what we value. That that's exactly what we want. When we keep our hand on the table of suffering and we don't turn back and say, sorry God, I'm out right now. You're not worth it. When we keep our hand on that table, it's saying you're worth every bit of it. And I would have that displayed to the world. It displays 
that though you have not seen him, you love him. That though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Our gladness in suffering as Christians is the gripping. Thinking of those imprisoned brothers and sisters in Christ, those suffering saints around the world. Their gladness in suffering is the gripping of their future glory. It is a gladness filled with hope-filled tears as the eyes of their heart are set on a time when tears will be no more. It is faith in future grace when they and we will see Christ face to face. Church, This rejoicing in the context of your suffering, it confirms your faith, confirms your love for Jesus, and is therefore confirming your greater rejoicing when you see the one whom you have loved above all. In the fullness of his glory, no longer through a glass dimly, and no longer mixed with pain and sorrow. Our next point, by the way, there's four points, uh, so <laughs> we'll see We'll see how long we go here. Uh, suffering, <clears throat> suffering as judgment. Um, this could be a weird one for us, but uh, this confirmation of true faith brings us to this point. That's that Christian sufferings, which is testing, is a judgment. We see this first in in verse 12 when it says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. And it's explicitly stated in verses 17 and 18, which say, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God and If the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? I don't know about all of you guys, but I was a late bloomer uh, when it came to the life of the mind. Uh, I was a high school dropout, actually. I don't know if I was so much as a uh, dropout as as much as like I never did the work and I got to the end and I was like, so do I get a a diploma? Um, No. (laughs) <laughs> my, mom, my mom actually had me tested in elementary school, God bless you, mom, uh, to see if I had learning disabilities. Uh, and time and time again, it was shown that uh, I kind of did have one, and that was that I was simply not interested at all in school or homework or anything like that uh, in any meaningful way. And thanks to Simon Sinek, I now know that I was, I was lacking my why, I didn't have my why kind of, kind of, kind of grounded um, throughout school. 
And this lasted until I was almost 19, um, which is when I, I really started to think deeply about God uh, and what life uh, was all about if he did or didn't exist, um, who he might be, and, and how various things in life uh, you know, kind of worked out in the reality given either one of those options. All of that to say, all of that to say that I did not do well when it came to test day. Um, most of my life, I did not do well on test day. Uh, it was then revealed on test day that I'd spent like way too much time playing Pokemon. Way too much time. Um, it was revealed that I didn't have the knowledge necessary uh, to pass any test. Um, and that's what tests do. They reveal whether or not something is in us. Tests don't grant knowledge. They confirm knowledge. You don't earn knowledge on test day. You confirm knowledge on test day. Your knowledge is revealed. For me, quite unfortunately, This is what's going on in our testing and judgment as believers in this life, as it begins with the household of God. This is one purpose in our sharing of Christ's sufferings. And by the way, I went on to get my GED, so, you know, thanks. I never had a graduation, so this is like as public of a display of that knowledge as I'm going to get. Um, What's being confirmed and revealed through our suffering, our testing? In the previous section, this might help us kind of see how this, this plays out. Uh, in chapter 4, we, we see that our suffering reveals something else. It reveals that we are, to a degree, done with sin. Right? That while we may still stumble, that it's not what we live for any longer. It's not what we are mindful of. It's not what we operate in. Uh, those who are willing to suffer in the flesh aren't those who are swayed by what the flesh wants anymore, right? So whoever has suffered in the flesh, verse 1 says in chapter 4, uh, they've ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but rather for the will of God. And we get derided for that, the verse says. Um, in our current text, and you may have guessed it by now, rejoicing in the suffering of Christ, it confirms your true faith. It confirms that you are a true follower of Jesus. It doesn't grant you glory. It confirms that the glory was and is already yours. It doesn't grant faith, it shows faith. That's the positive. That, that, that's why we should be drawn to rejoicing in our sufferings, be kept in our sufferings. Not give up on Jesus because of our sufferings. That's the positive motivation we're confirmed by him in those sufferings. There's also a negative reason that Peter gives as well. 
And that's verse 18. Um, when, when we're told that if all the suffering is taking place and it's hard for a believer in this life, think about what it's going to be like for those who deny and reject the gospel and take on the judgment that was laid upon Christ so that you didn't have to undertake it. The argument is that I know you're suffering. I know it's hard. I know it's difficult. But you don't want to bear the sufferings just as Christ did. His death on the cross took place so that you wouldn't be judged in exactly the same way as him. He bore the brunt of that. And so be found in him. Be willing to suffer what this world can do to you. Because in comparison with the judgment that fell upon Jesus and that would remain upon you outside of him. And I know, I, I know this, this, this might sound crazy to some people, but it is small in light of that kind of suffering. Our concluding point. This showing of faith in our suffering, this display of faith as our final point, suffering a stage for faith. Verse 19, therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Dane Ortland, um, author of the breakaway bestseller, Gentle and Lowly, which our church's book club is going to be going to. Gotcha. Uh, in his sermon on this section, starts with a good hook of a question. He says this. He opens his sermon in this way. Would you like the spirit of glory and of God to rest on you? And if you answer yes, what might you instinctively assume would be the way to have that take place? Blaise Pascal uh, says that the first task of the Christian apologist, of one who is attempting to draw others to faith in Jesus, is to make that faith desirable. Why? Because once someone wants the truth to be true, they're not going to be as opposed to what that truth is. What that truth might entail, what claims it could lay upon them, and what directives that truth would have for their lives. Dane Ortland starts his sermon by drawing his listeners to an extremely desirable reality. The resting of the Spirit of God on you. So that they might not turn back when they understand what that reality entails. what stage their trust in God would be displayed on. Suffering. We see this operating in what little faith the disciples display in John 6. In this chapter of John's gospel, uh, we have these famous words from Christ. 
The bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Beautiful, soul-stirring words from our Savior. But it starts to get a little bit weird after that. Jesus goes on to say, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will never live, he, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And we're told at this point that the Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? At this point, Jesus is like, all right, I'll go full weird. Um, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, and, uh, and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh, I can see the disciples at this point, like, yeah, that's good, that's good. You stop right there. Uh, and Jesus is like, no, 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 no. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. What's the reaction of the disciples to that? They said, this is a hard saying. (laughs) Who can listen to it? And even after Jesus in that chapter explains to an extent what was behind those hard words, he nevertheless, we are nevertheless told in John chapter 6, 66, that after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. I wouldn't have wanted to be in that group. But I often fear that I would have been. There's been so many times that I've come to hard words of God and I've thought to myself, you know, not only could some things make a lot more sense without me having to grapple with this one, but man, life would be so much more easy. So what's most interesting to me in this text with regards to the operation of faith in difficult circumstances, is why any of them stayed. Why did any of them keep going with him? What is it that kept them? In verse 67 and 68, we find out, and the answer comes right from the lips of the one who wrote the text we're studying tonight. John 6, 6, 67 and 68. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Do you want to leave? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. You'll notice that he did not mention anything about what Jesus had said. Not all the answers. Just one foundational reality. You have the words of eternal life. And since we can be sure of that, we can and will endure your hard sayings. We'll draw near, not because we understand what you're saying right now, but because we are sure of something that you have said And it makes this bearable. 
What's the foundational reality amid the most troubling of unjust sufferings for being a Christian that you can be sure of? The reality that would supply such great gladness and so eclipses the sadness of suffering that it can keep you on the hard road of life lived for Christ, continuing to do the very good that may have brought about those fiery trials. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-5, through five, God, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. It's kept in heaven for you, suffering saints who by God's power are being guarded. You're being guarded through faith for a salvation that is ready. It's ready to be revealed at the last time. And in that, you can rejoice. You can rejoice. By faith in this, even, even if it's just that one pinprick of light for you, you are kept. By this, your tears can be turned to joy. By entrusting yourself to God, when you suffer for righteousness' sake, you are entrusting yourself to a faithful God, one who would see your faith validated and your consolation confirmed through to the end. William Cooper, the 18th century poet, attempted to convey truths of God, which, by the way, he had a suffering life of depression. He attempted to convey truths of God to a spiritually apathetic culture who just didn't care about those divine truths. And he writes in his poem, The Task, this. I who scribble rhyme to catch the triflers of the time, and tell them truths divine and clear, which couched in prose they would not hear. William Cooper utilized rhyme to catch the ear of his uncaring contemporaries, and thereby exposed them to truths divine and clear, who, if it was not couched in rhyme, if it wasn't a nice ditty, probably wouldn't have listened. The suffering of Jesus is the rhyme of God. Far from the suffering of Christ being the thing that did Christianity in, defeated, shamed, and defamed it, it rather dignified it. It caused it to spread throughout the world like wildfire. There may, there, there may be no greater act of subversion than the subversion of suffering in the glory-infused suffering of Jesus Christ and of those who follow him. God couched glory, goodness, and worth in the suffering of our Savior so that our hearts would be turned, 
so that our ears would be caught. We live in a world taken aback, drawn in, and brought to attention. Surprised by a suffering Savior. May your suffering and your reaction to it do likewise. It is the stage on which your faith is validated and displayed. What stage might God be calling you to? That's the hard part of this, right? What stage might he be calling you to? What suffering might you be called to endure? How might you surprise the world with your response to the outworking of your Christian faith? Christian suffering. All I can say is be bold and grip glory. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.